This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're going to bring you an hour today with the writer Kate Beaton. She gained an international following for Hark a Vagrant, a quirky, satirical, historically informed comic strip. Her new book is very different. It's a deeply personal graphic memoir called Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands. It's about the time she spent working in the oil industry in Alberta, Canada in the mid-2000s. She went there to pay off her student loans. Her book about that time is a brutally honest exploration of class, migration, misogyny, and the culture of her homeland, the island of Cape Breton on the Atlantic province of Nova Scotia. We spoke at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. Kate Beaton has been traveling on her book tour with a friend from back home. Peter McGinnis is a teacher, a farmer, a fisherman, and a musician. Given that Kate Breton culture figures prominently in Ducks, we started our conversation with a song from Peter. Still walk on down to the shore. I watch that sun rising over the eastern ocean, but I don't sail to meet it anymore. How could they let this happen? We saw it coming years ago. The greedy ships just kept getting bigger and bigger, and the sonar told them where to go. Not a dream that I was sailing on a sea of Galilee. We cast our nets upon the water. Jesus pulled them in with me. Where am I gonna go now? What about this boat I own? What about this old piano? What about my father's bones? Last night I dreamed that I was sailing on a sea of Galilee. We cast our nets upon the water. Jesus pulled them in. Someone sang an old sea shanty And nearly told a mainland joke Kelly cursed and swore till his voice gave out Then he asked me for a smoke Then he took his father's shotgun Walked to the harbor through the town Fired 14 shots, woke everyone up, and we all watched that boat going down. Last night I dreamed that I was sailing on a sea of Galilee. We cast our nets upon the water, Jesus pulled them in with me. Last night I dreamed that I was sailing on a sea of Galilee. We cast our nets upon the water, 
Jesus, hold them in with me. I still get up before the day breaks. I still walk on down to the shore. And I watch that sun rising over the eastern ocean, but I don't sail to meet it anymore. Why did you want to start with that song? For, for me, for anyone from the Atlantic provinces, these songs, they've been a part of our culture for, uh, for, for my entire life. And, uh, you know, we all tell ourselves stories about who we are before we know who we are. And I grew up with these songs that told me who I was before I knew who I was. And a lot of them were about labor. They were about leaving for work. I remember listening to that song on the school bus, going to school, on the, on the radio, because it was, uh, it was a, uh, Lenny Gallant is the name of the local artist. He was from PEI. And, uh, and it was a song that came out in the mid-90s when I was still in elementary school. So I'll be riding on the bus and listening to this song, you know, talking about the collapse of the fishery and how you can't go fishing anymore and how you have to leave your livelihood. So much of the early book is about, and that song is about leaving Cape Breton. <clears throat> What's Cape Breton? What does it look like? What does it smell like? The place that, that you left, what is it? It's an island. Cape Breton is an island on the Atlantic coast of Canada in the province of Nova Scotia. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful island. It's very rural. Um, and uh, it, uh, I am from the west coast, which is the, the more rural part of it. There is the industrial side that had leaned heavily on industries of coal and steel for uh, many generations. And, um, and on our side, you found more farming and fishering. fishering. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very tourist-heavy island because of the scenery and because of how much fiddling we do. <laughs> but that's a seasonal industry. And... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's Mi'kmaq land, it's, uh, it's uh, unceded Mi'kmaq territory. That's, that's an important point to make. It's also a, a place that has been a have-not area of a have-not province for many generations, and we have exported labor there for about a, over 100 years. How long have members of your family been leaving Cape Breton to find work? Oh, since the late 1800s, you find stories of family members leaving for places. Um, you know, you always hear of grandpa's uncles going to the Black Hills of Montana for work in, in uh, the mines there. And we do have... Uh, letters from places like that, from from mines, often often working in mines. We have a letter from 1904 from I think Colorado saying uh, this was once a good mining camp, but it's going down fast. I would like to return to Mabu before I die. He doesn't. Um, so this this sense of leaving and longing to return is very ingrained. In, uh, in the generations of people from, uh, from where I'm from. Economic migration, which is what we're, we're talking about, and, and mm -hmm. class, people who, who cannot find or make a future um, where they are, so they have to find jobs elsewhere. That's obvious. It's not unique to Cape Breton. But I'm wondering what, 
What is culturally, in terms of the way that fact has filtered itself into, into your lives there? Well, people leave lots of places for work. It's true, but it's, um, I'm not sure how many other places build their, their entire sort of sense of identity around this, um, this sense of leaving and their value of themselves. Which, which is so ingrained in, our, in us. And, um, and, uh, what, do, what do you mean? How is the, the fact of or being told that, um, that you're going to leave or your, your father, your grandfather, your uncle, they left, how does that affect the way you think about your value in the world or the place where you're from, its value in the world? When you export labor for generation after generation, eventually you do internalize the idea that what you have and who you are is not good enough and what work you can get somewhere else and however they treat you is good no matter what it is as long as it's a job. And when you are in a place that is a working class, industrial sort of working class where companies hold a lot of power, even if you do have a history of of um, protest and and uh, um, you know resistance. Uh, you it it becomes very clear over time that how much power these companies hold. And, and I've, I've said before, I, I really believe that in a lot of places, certain working class people are, are part of the environment that is brutalized by corporations in pursuit of money. Um, and uh, for, for places that export labor, they just become the part of the pattern when they, when they export, you know, and, and it's seen as, as an inevitability too, you know, that, that you export the labor and it's a good thing. You go where the jobs are, you're fortunate just to have the money. I never thought anything of going to Fort McMurray when I left because we were supposed to go to get a job where the jobs were because where we were where we lived, everything was imploding. The coal mines were closing, the steel mills were closing, or the steel factories or everything. The pulp mill was closing down. And um, the rest of the country, and you have your analogs here in the States, uh, areas of economic decline where uh, the rest of the country is looking at places that they say, well, these industries are all dead. So stop giving them handouts. You guys should just, you know, leave and go where the work is and pull yourselves up. And uh, um, you're seen as sort of a, a problem. You do internalize the way that people look at you. And, uh, and so you leave. You go where the work is and, you, you know, a job is a job. A good job is... I, I left. Everybody was leaving. And that's the way it had been for a long time. You left, as you um, write in the book, specifically to pay off student loans from going to university. How much did you know about the um, oil sands before you left? Almost nothing. Nobody really talked about the oil sands. It wasn't really within... It wasn't really part of a, a big conversation at that time. We, we're very invested in climate change right now, but in 2005, it, wasn't, it really wasn't part of a, like a, a larger conversation that we were having. It was very nascent. Um, and uh, and we, weren't, we were not talking the way we are now. This was before like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. Um, we were talking about... Uh, colonial, like the recognition of the colonial damage uh, and, and uh, for indigenous communities that, that are, 
you know, environmental racism, things like that. Um, when I was graduating university in 2005, people were talking about Hurricane Katrina, they were talking about the war on Darfur, they were talking about Kanye West, like we were still talking about Kanye West. And, but no, they weren't really talking about the oil sands. And, uh, and even where I'm from, where people went to get a job, they were calling it, they, they would call it things like money jail, which was not like, you know, you weren't going to go there and have a good time. Money jail. Yeah, the money jail. So that, that was the phrase you'd heard, that's what yeah. you were heading to. Yeah, yeah. Every people were like, we have to go to money jail to, <laughs> to, to feed our family. I mean, it's a, it's, <laughs> I can imagine people using that to describe a lot of jobs, but, yeah. but I guess I haven't heard that phrase before, and it, it seems in some ways specific to the world you were going to. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it gave the impression that you were going to go to this place that was not going to be nice. And, and this is like, especially the world of the camps, like the work camps, where the rotations are something like 14 and 7 or 21 and 8, which meaning, is like... Meaning 21 days on, 8 days off. Yes. Yeah, if you were a fly-in and fly-out, and even if you were 14 and 7, the 7 days off, two of those days would be traveling or more if the weather was bad, and, uh, and the shifts were like 12 hours. Um, it's a lot of work, and, and the person that you are disappears when you're working because you're, you're only there for work. And any other thing that makes you who you are, you know, your hobbies, your interests, all of that stuff, it just disappears. You're re-socialized in this camp environment that, that um, takes away and, and only values certain things about you and you are not connected to other human beings in your life your family, your friends, your, your community. They're, the community is not there. People do liken it to jails. Some people are fine. Other people are not fine. Hmm. And it becomes very apparent. Let's listen to another song. Um, this one about departure, about what we're, what we're talking mm -hmm. about. It's called Heading for Halifax. And Peter McGinnis, again, is our musician. have turned green the sheep on the hillside there's birds on the wing and over my shoulder the last time I'm seen the old home all weathered and grey we talked until three my father and me and the fiddle tunes play like the clear marguerite Never forget who you are, son, said he, as I follow my brothers away. But I'm heading for Halifax to see what's to spare in the way of some work. And if nothing's there, well, it's Toronto out west to God only knows where. But there's bound to be friends from back home. One thing I know is wherever I go, well, my heart's in Cape Breton, it'll always be so. Whenever a fiddler rossens the bow, my first and last thoughts are of home. But I'm a-heading for Halifax to see what's to spare in the way of some work. And if nothing's there, well, it's Toronto out west to God only knows where. But there's bound to be friends from back home. 
Yeah, cause one thing I know is wherever I go, my heart's in Cape Breton, it'll always be so. Whenever a fiddler rossens the bow, well, my first and last thoughts are of home. That's Peter McGinnis. One of the lines there is, there's bound to be friends from back home. Um, and it, that was true for you in the camps, and it seems like it was true for everybody, wherever they came from. For the, the non-Canadians among us in the audience, can you describe the kinds of regional factions or, or, or ties that developed in these camps? Yes, sure. Um... It's such a complicated thing because you show up in those camps and they are, they can be very dehumanizing, like I said, like the, the extremely punishing um, hours and, and schedules and, uh, and the way that they're isolated and cut off from society, it's, it's brutal. Um, and it, it takes away like your sense of self. And when you come back into regular society, like I, I felt completely apart. And, and you felt like you had to like function like a regular human again. Um, you had to the, learn how to do that? Yeah, I remember being in a bar with like a, a drink and being like, I don't know how to talk. Like, I didn't know how to talk to people like a regular person. Um, but, um, but at the same time, you know, I was in like this big meal hall and, uh, and sort of like keeping my head down and trying to eat. And then my cousin sat down beside me. He's like, hi. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, Angus, hi. <laughs> Mom told me you might be here, or Dad. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I live in like, you know, I'm in the other like camp here. And like, I'm, I'm like, and he described his job to me, and I was like, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. You, you can say that word. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was his job. There are words was like, you can't say, that's fine. His job is like crazy. It sounded like it was, it was like extremely physical and bad, and he does have like a, like a really, uh, like a bad back problem now. But he was there. I didn't even know he was there. And he, he just like, he popped out of nowhere. My first cousin. And then I was working in, uh, where I worked in the tool crib, which is like a mobile like supply site for the tradespeople. And somebody who worked for a different company showed up. And I was like, oh, you must be in the wrong place. And he's like, no, I'm in the right place. And I was like, I know that accent. Like, that's from, that's from my side of the island, like specifically. Because you know... Like, people are coming up to you from, like, if they're from Atlantic Canada, like, you, you're, like, your ears in two, and it's, like, ding. Like, you're from, like, Halifax, or you're from, like, like this part of the, like, or that part. What and was it, it like to hear that accent? It felt like, you know, like, like very, because people would be coming up, and, and you felt you were in, like, a real soup of people. And, and they were from all over Canada, really. Like, people, like, you could immediately track like somebody from Alberta, somebody from BC, somebody, and there were people from like, from like the, a lot of people from the UK, from like, the North Sea oil guys, and you couldn't understand those guys at all. And <laughs> a lot of Filipino workers, a lot of like, there's like people from all over the place. Uh, rarely anybody from the, from the States actually. One guy from Colorado, his name was Colorado. And <laughs> <laughs> really imaginative. We were like, that guy. <laughs> A welder from Colorado, uh, and uh, but then you hear that 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 voice that's like from he sounds exactly like you know people, and and he's like I'm just here to check on you. I heard that like Neil's daughter was here, and and uh, I want to see how you're doing and like how you're getting along. And I was like I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Like it's great to hear. It. And his daughter was in my class, and um, uh, and I'm I'm still great friends with him. And, and even though, like, you know, uh, I have, a, there's, like, there's so much harassment in the book because, of course, men outnumber women, like, immensely. You write 50 to 1. I do, but sometimes it was 10 to 1. It depended on where you were. Um, I heard a story before I came here from my little sister's friend who, um, she went out there as well. Uh, and uh, so this is a nicer story to, like, mitigate some of those. Because, because, of course, harassment was everywhere because of the, the gender imbalance was just bananas. Um, so my little sister's friend went out there and, um, 
and she was a young girl at that time. She was like 20. And so did her old bus driver. Um, from he like he he's quit bus driving and he's like gonna make the big money out west. And um, so he went out there, and he was on the same site as her. And the the guys around them where they were like, "Do you see the new girl?" And he's like, "That's my niece." And he she's not his niece. <laughs> he was like, it was the first thing I could think of to say so that they'd shut up around me. But now he writes her Christmas cards every year from your favorite uncle. <laughs> I mean, you preface that by saying this is like a, a happy story, but... I know, it's, it's not. It's, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, like when you're there, you take what you can get. But yeah. also, it is funny because he's like, he's like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna like, to step in here and, like, uh, and, and do what I can to make sure these guys like, leave her alone, especially around me. It's some version of protection, similar yes. to... to um, the pressure to pair up to, to find a, yeah. a, a boyfriend, which people told you. Yes, they, yeah, 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 they did. And when I did date somebody, they did back off, which was just like gross. But um, uh, it was weirdly true. And people have told me the same thing about working in tree planting. And someone said, yeah, <laughs> back there. Uh, other, you know, it's not unique to to the oil industry or to, it's, it's the same. Somebody wrote me a, a letter and they were like, this book gives me PTSD from my time working at Home Depot. <laughs> it's like Home Depot. Oh no, What's, where's society headed? That's Kate Beaton, the author of the graphic memoir, Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands. We'll have more after a break. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud, I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're bringing you my conversation today with the writer Kate Beaton. We recorded it in front of an audience at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. Beaton gained an international following for her comic Hark a Vagrant. Her graphic memoir is called Ducks. It's about the two years she spent working in Alberta's oil sands. At one point, I asked her how she was affected by the daily accumulation of harassment and misogyny in a place that she couldn't get away from. It was, it was chip, chipping away. It had the, it had the effect of, of chipping away. And uh, it, it made you smaller and smaller. And you think that, like, in your dreams, you're, you're like some kind of, like, it would happen and you'd be like, no. You would, like, you, you would puff up and, and have, like, an amazing comeback and, and just, like give as good as you got. But, but you wouldn't. Like, like sometimes you would say something because you, you didn't care anymore. But most of the time, the, the remarks and things were so small and so innocuous that you, it just rolled off of you or you absorbed it. And you became very inured to the danger that you were in because it just happened all the time. And there was no point in saying anything. And if you did say things, like if you... There, at, at one point I do go up to my boss and because I'm called in and he's like I heard you I heard you complained about something and and this is a man's world and you know you what did you expect and, and I was young I was 22 so so of course I I wanted to acquiesce and I was like I'll, it'll never happen again I'll never complain again I like I don't want special treatment I will never um it was humiliating. special treatment meant um being treated uh given <sighs> Yeah. Responding to, I'm, I'm struggling to even get the words out because it's, it's, it's such meant, an absurdity. Yeah, it meant like being given preferential treatment, like not like being like, I don't want to work there because I don't like the way that people talk to me. Um, you know, instead of like, because companies, they say that they have zero tolerance for sexual harassment, uh, which just means that they have to fire like 90% of the people. Um, it, it's complete fabrication. Um, and even now, you know, you, you go to like Shell's website for like the oil sands and like half the pictures are like smiling women and you're like, oh, come on, like smiling people of color. And you're like, mm, uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, like, uh, they're very interested in the image of of being a good place to work and all that stuff. And, and, and it, 
it went down into everything, right? You know, the, in the book, it makes a, it, it, I, I make a point of all the, um, you know, millions of man hours without a, without a lost day incident. So if anybody did get injured, they would just put them behind a desk so that they wouldn't, you know, you, oh, you broke your arm? Well, then you can, like, you can just sit on this, like, log for, <laughs> for a day instead of, like, having to lose a day of work so that we can keep our 400 million man hours without an incident and then somebody like died on site I think that after somebody died on site they kept their millions of man hours going because he was a contractor that worked for a different company and of course there was zero zero talk of mental health at the time that I was there you know 2005 to 2008 I think it's it's getting better right now what was the culture of drug use and drug abuse when you were there it was everywhere and I was extremely naive about it. I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't know how to look for it. I didn't know how to look for the signs because I was just I, very, I, I didn't know anything about it. So even after I left, even when I was making the book, I would ask people about, do you remember this coworker? And they're like, he was on Percocet and then he would take cocaine. I was like, he did? And they were like, yes, didn't you have eyeballs? And I was like, he did? And... And I felt like a, I felt like a little baby even when I was making my own book about it, because I, I just couldn't see the signs. But people would be erratic, and and it was so easy, because it was available everywhere, and there was no like the mental health discussions weren't there, and people would be in a if there was a personal crisis in their life, which there often was because you were so cut off from society and in your families. The divorce rate in the camps was very high. It took a real toll on families to be so far away, to be so cut off. If you talk to any school teachers who dealt with children of, of parents who went on these uh, back and forth, like you, you, can, you know uh, who they are, who the kids are. The children left behind. Yes. That, you, you, know when, you know when the dad comes home, you know when he leaves. It shows. And, and so you see like the toll that this, that this, that this work lifestyle takes on, on people. And, and some of these are people that had no other choice but to go and work like this. But it, it's hard on people. The picture you and, oh, sorry. portray um, specifically about, about mainly men, fathers, mm-hmm. um, you know, working sometimes in the it camps. Was, sometimes it was mothers. But, but, but often, often fathers. fathers. The picture that, that you present is that it was that both because they were away for so long, when they'd go back to their families, it wasn't like that would magically make things better. No. That, that, that being away and being back were both problematic. They were, because often the mother had things in hand when, when the father was away. And then when he gets back, he kind of like upsets the apple cart. And, um, or he'd come back and it would be euphoria. But then they would leave everything that they had to fight about, money and things, until like the last day that he was there. And so then... Uh, then they would leave on like a sour note. It's it's just a very difficult thing to manage, and some people do manage it well, but it's it's just hard. And you can imagine how hard it is. And that separation is hard on the children. And and uh, you know you can't. It's we're talking in generalities because we're here and we only have a few minutes. It's so difficult to to talk about this um, fairly for everybody because people will be listening and be like, I was fine. And like, good for you. <laughs> you were fine. And, and, and other men can handle that, that camp lifestyle and be fine. I have cousins who went through it. They're fine. Um, with, I have with, other cousins who went through it. They're not fine. The ones who were fine, whether they were your cousins or other people yeah, maybe, other, who, you know, who, who've gotten like, in touch with you, yeah. do they complain about the, the portrait that you have presented? No. Uh, they don't. No, because they, like, there are people in the book who are fine, too. You know, and and uh, but but the reality is that um, it's a gigantic industry that employs so many people, and it's so very little studied. It's so very little talked about. It's it, it's an industry that's so polarizing, and um, and and uh, in, in in Atlantic Canada, where where like it has a massive effect on on everything we uh, all, on all of us because of. So many people have gone out there to work and, and have to have it so little studied and even so little talked about in a way. Because even though we have exported labor for generations, this, this camp environment thing, this is newer. And, um, and this reliance on, on the, the camp 
money for, for so long and for McMurray. That, that was a newer thing as well. And, and not just, you know, to make the book, I, I, I was so, I, was, I, I had the parameters, all I could use were my own memories of that time, right? There, there are two Cape Eatons. There's, there's myself in the book who's, who's young and can only talk to you about 2005 to 2008. And then there's myself, the author here, who's 39 and has a lot more, you know, has thought a lot more about things. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that split because I'm wondering, you, you had said earlier that um, people sort of make fun of you for uh, as what you described as your naivete, your lack yeah. of awareness of, in, in that case, it was drugs. But how much had you processed the traumas that you'd experienced over the course of these years before you started working on this book? Oh, I've seen lots of therapists. <laughs> Many therapists. It's, it's funny because um, there's always something sort of new to, to take from it. The, the thing is, you know, there is, there is sexual violence in the book, and yet it's such a common thing. It's, it's so, it's so common. And, and, and it's a real, I had the choice to put it in or not. And if I left it out, then it wouldn't be the truth. I could have spared myself the, you know, a conversation on the stage in front of a lot of people, <laughs> but it wouldn't be the truth. And it's funny that, that, you don't see that much conversation about it in relation to the oil sands when you have such a heavily imbalanced, uh, you know, workforce. And especially when you have things like these, these work camps that are situated among uh, indigenous communities. And we all know that that these are vulnerable populations. Um, the, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Report tells us that. But it's a very Canadian thing to look the other way. How much did you talk about what, what life in the camps was like with your sister before she came? I think I was in a bit of denial myself before then. Uh, because again, when you're in the middle of it and you're being, like I said, when, you're, when you are in that environment yourself and you are being harassed, you, you minimize it, you compartmentalize it. And, and I, I told her, you know, I was like, it's pretty bad. And she's like, I'm a waitress in Halifax at the bars. <laughs> I can handle this. And I kind of like, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, because she was a waitress at some of the bars where, like, you know, we had to wear the, like, you know, the, the dress code was like, wear this small skirt and let men slap you in the, the when they, when you walk by. Um, that's where she works, <laughs> which is like a different conversation entirely. So she's like, I can handle it. And then she got there and she's like, this place sucks. <laughs> I don't think that you truly understand the, the extent of what you're looking at until you're there, until you're in that environment. And then no amount of like, this is really bad, it does it justice until you're there. And that's part of the reason to make the book as well. I, I really wanted to drop readers in who've never been in an, in an environment where they've been extremely vulnerable like that. So you, you're, you're, you're put in through the, through the eyes of the character that is me into, into something. I, I had no idea. I didn't know what to do with myself. When you walk in for the first time in your life and, and you're, you're surrounded by this kind of attention and people are talking to you, I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, uh, you know, we weren't socialized to... to to know what to do with that kind of attention. It wasn't flattering attention. It wasn't like, it wasn't even personal. It was extremely impersonal. You know, it, it didn't mean anything. It was just people sort of just like grasping at like, 
whatever around you, like thin air, and you you're like a you're like the vague shape of a, like a woman shape, and and you're well aware, like you, you know, it didn't even matter if you had a name. They'd be like Nancy, <laughs> you have brown hair, <laughs> and a and a woman shape. I like that. <laughs> There's a scene when you and your sister are talking about these issues when she's there, mm-hmm. and you have um, this really profound question that, that you don't really have answers to, but you basically ask, well, if, if our dad were here or the men that we know and trust from back home, what would they be like? Yeah. What, what, what was behind those questions? What's well, a scary question, because... Nobody goes out to a place like that thinking, you know what, I'm going to destroy myself. <laughs> I'm going to become an And I think that I'm going to be a complete um, <laughs> It's amazing that Jesus is all right in your mind. <laughs> or is a problem. Luckily, we can beep everything out, but it's like, okay. I mean, can, maybe Canada is just different than the U.S. I forgot. <laughs> no, it's... I'm, I, I did for- open the door, so... Okay. Okay. The thing is, I went out... I have had a, a potty mouth since I left the oil sands. Did you... Is that one of the I things did. you brought back with you? It is. It is. And, and uh, um, anecdotally, other people say the same thing. Like, everybody out there is just like, F, 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 F. And then I left there, and I was like, F, 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 So to, but to so go back to the important question But go back to the making. important question. Anyway, it is, it is an important question. Because, because people just go out there for, for jobs, Right. And then, but then you are re-socialized in this place that is like, is like toxic masculinity, and that's what we call it, even though people like debate the validity of that term or whatever, it's like a triggering word or term, but, but that's what it is. Um, and uh, and the, the image that you have in, in places like that is of these, these like men that are, that, that, are, that are like, they're bad, and they, they drive around in the big trucks, and we don't like them, and, um, and, and all of this. And whether that's a fair, you know, image or not, a lot of fathers go out there, and when, when they come home, they're still dads, you know, they're still, they're still husbands, all this stuff. But you, when, you're, when you come out there and you get hit on by a lot of dads, you're like, what's going on here? I don't like it. And when you see a lot of people go out there and fall into the mental health traps that, that are, you know, that are basic, they're just set there and uh, from isolation, from loneliness, from all this sort of toxic culture and, um, and the drugs are waiting and the alcohol is waiting and all, and all of these things. And even you hear like stories from from workers, and they're like, I became a person I didn't like. It's, you know, it's easy to write everybody off as just terrible, but that's too simple. You, you can't do that. They're, they're human beings. You, I didn't like what I saw, but I was also living with people who, who were people. I didn't like the way people talked to me, but if you listen to them, and you know when, when the price of oil dropped in Alberta a few years later, like really dropped, and there were massive layoffs, suicides went up. There are real repercussions to this kind of culture. Anyway, so you're seeing people go out there that look like your family, your brothers, your cousins, your uncles, and all this stuff, and there really were my cousins and my neighbors and you wonder about the ones that you love and then you there's a scene where I get a call from somebody from like Toronto she's from like a, um, a sort of a prestigious publication and she wants to write a story about the oil sands and her questions are already loaded They're, she's like how disgusting is it how how do people treat you? What was the worst thing someone said to you? And it was all very like like she had her thesis already, and it was ready. It was just going to be like the the sec the rampant sexism, just like the disgusting people, 
And, and I felt very exploited by the questions. And I felt defensive of these people who had said disgusting things to me and treated me badly. And they said in the book to my friend, because I said it in real life, like, people like her think that the people that they love would not be affected. Like, the men in her life would not be affected by the loneliness, by the culture, by the toxicity. They think that the, the people that they care about would not be affected by this. And they would. And it, it's a sad thought. It's, it's very sad. It shouldn't make you angry and it shouldn't make you toss people into a garbage can. It should make you want to change the culture. I want to go back to the beginning and the, the messages that, that you got and that so many people, as, you, as you've noted, got in different parts of, of Eastern Canada and Cape Breton in particular, that you had to go away to make a life. And there was a, a good chance that when you did that to find a job to, 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 to make money to survive, that you wouldn't go back home, go back to a place that means so much to you. But you have been able to go home. Yeah. What does that mean to you? It means a lot. I'm there for my parents as they get older and my uncles who are there. People who I can't imagine being far away from it right now as, as all of this is happening, you know. I, I lived far away for a long time. And to be there now where I feel the most like myself. I lived in Toronto and I lived in New York and I lived in different places. And I, I loved those places. But when, I'm, when I am home, I feel, I feel the most like myself. And, and that feels like a real gift. You know, I, I feel like I'm part of the picture, like I'm in the painting. Um, but at the same time, my sister is in Edmonton. My cousins are in Edmonton. There's a lot of people that I grew up with. They're they're there. They're in they're in the West still. They come home in the summertime. You see them. Um, this this migration is is still very much a part of things. It's in our lives. What message do you intentionally give to your kids about their home and their futures? I. It's hard to say. They're three and, and one, so they're babies. <laughs> but that's, I, <laughs> but mean, I you, will. you could play, you know, yeah. that, that song we started with, Peter's Dream to them, yeah. to a three-year-old. They, yeah. they could soak up the, the songs and messages that you soaked up. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, uh, like, they, they will hear all of those songs as well, but they will know that they have choices in in a way that we didn't. We were we were told that the door is over there, the exit is over there, and you have to go through it. And we were also told, we were also made to feel in a lot of ways that that uh that a job is a good job. You know, that that uh um oh, you mean, any if, job. if you're getting money, it's yes. it is by definition a good job. Yeah, it is. And that that um that corporations hold power in a way that you sort of can't do anything about. Mm. And, and even though, like I said, Cape Breton has a long history of protest, it, it seemed that, that in the end the companies always seemed to sort of win. And, and so I never, I never challenged things when I was younger, but I think we're in a place right now, all of us, where we are, where we are challenging things, the, the, that we see that these things are all sort of facades and we, we don't want to give corporations power over our lives and, and we want to knock those walls down. And, I, and that is something that I want my kids to know. Kate Beaton, thanks very much. Thank you. We're going to go out with um, one more song from Peter McGinnis. It's in memory of Father Angus MacDonnell.
We talked with Kate Beaton and heard music from her friend Peter McGinnis at the 2022 Portland Book Festival put on by Literary Arts. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPV and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. 